turning their Bibles to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. I'm going to do things a little differently this morning. I'm going to read differently than I've done in Judges anyway. I'm going to read the entire text, and then we'll pray, and then I'm going to give some context, summarize the text on what's really going on, and then I want to give three things that we can draw out from this as we apply it to our lives. So I'm going to read the entire text for us this morning, and then we'll pray. Judges 9, we're looking at verses 22 through 57. Judges 9, 22 through 57. It's a longer section. Judges 9, 22 through 57. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gael the son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal, and is, is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as, the, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael the, saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gael spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went out at the hand of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aramah, and Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives. 
so that they could not dwell at Shechem. Verse 42, on the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose, he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Berith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Verse 50, Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 sons, his 70 brothers, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobeel. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through it. We ask that you would help us rightly apply this to our lives and that our confidence and trust would be in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen. As most of you know, I really enjoy superhero movies. It's not a surprise to anyone here. So I recently saw the latest one, Batman vs. Superman, The Dawn of Justice, it's basically the sequel to the last Superman movie, which was The Man of Steel. But it had been quite a while since I had seen that movie. And what I noticed in watching the sequel is how important it was to remember and know what was going on in the previous movie. And that's the case with all sequels, isn't it? I didn't see God's Not Dead or God's Not Dead 2, but I imagine that's the case probably help me to see the first one first, right? The idea with sequels is that being generally aware of what came first 
helps shed light on what comes next, right? That's the case when we read this passage in the Bible. This is really a, a, a part two, if you will, of what I preached about a month ago, in fact. So as we study this text this morning, it's helpful to know what happened in that previous episode. Because this is really a, a sequel, if you will. So that, be, that being said, I want to briefly give a recap and then summarize the story and then give three practical implications, three truths that we can take from this text as we seek to apply it to our lives. So since it's been several weeks since we looked at the first part of chapter 9, let's consider the context. You recall that Gideon was raised up by God to deliver the people from the Midianites back in chapters 6 and 7. And then in chapter 8, the people of Israel want to make Gideon their king. They want him to rule over them. But he refuses, even though he acts a lot like a king. He names one of his sons Abimelech. You recall that Abimelech means my father is king. My father is king. And then in chapter 9, after the death of Gideon, Abimelech now rises up to power. And he encourages them to make him their king rather than any of his 70 brothers. So he gives this campaign speech that results in the leaders of Shechem rallying around him. It's a pretty impressive speech. And so he, he goes and he kills his 70 brothers on one stone. But one of his brothers, Jotham, escaped the massacre and stands on Mount Gerizim. You recall Mount Gerizim. This is the, the mountain in which the blessings were announced to Israel. And he tells a story. He tells a, a parable, a fable, which becomes now a curse upon the people. And Jotham declares to the people in verses 7 through 20 that since they made Abimelech their king and treated Gideon and his own brothers harshly, that Abimelech will destroy them with fire and they will destroy him as well. And that brings us to our text. Let me give you a, a brief summary of this account and I want to draw out three implications from it. So here's the summary. In verses 22 through 29, the stage is set. We hear of Abimelech ruling or governing the people of Israel for three years. His time as their leader was short-lived. It's only three years, and then this, these events unfold. And then we're given a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes. God is working to bring justice to those who have done evil to Gideon's sons to Jotham's brothers. God sends an evil spirit. He sends a harmful spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem so that there's conflict between one another. God's purpose is to deal with the unfaithfulness and violence that happened to the 70 sons of Gideon. That's what we see here. And God will justly punish those who have done evil, those who have killed and approved of the death of Gideon's sons. The spirit that God sent caused this loyalty between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem to, in some way, be brought into question. 
in some way, this covenant relationship that was occurring between these groups is now in question. It's now broken. And so now what happens is the events that unfold in this text display this conflict. They display this broken relationship with one another. And so in verse 26, we're introduced to a new character. We're introduced to Gael. And he moves into town with his family, and the leaders put their confidence and trust in him. And at a festival, they revile Abimelech. And Gael speaks up and says in verse 28, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? That's the son of Gideon? Is not Zebul his officer? Why should we serve him? And then he continues in verse 29, Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So here's Gael giving his own campaign speech, if you will. He calls into question why they are even serving, why they are serving Abimelech. Because he's not a true Shechemite, right? His father is who? Gideon. Mother is a Shechemite. So they should follow him instead. And Gael says that if he were in charge, he would fight Abimelech and defeat him. And then in verse 30, Zebul finds out that he's angry, so he secretly sends messengers to Abimelech that Gael and his family are stirring up the city against him. So he gives them a plan on how to deal with this problem. He tells them to set an ambush and attack. In verse 34 through 41, the plan now is carried out. The stage is set, and now the plan is going to be carried out. They divide into four camps, four companies, and attack the leaders, and they attack Gale. Verse 39, look with me at verse 39. And Gale went out of, at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gale and his relatives so they could not dwell at Shechem. So this is, this is the context. The, the stage has been set. This plan is being carried out. But Abimelech, his rage continues. Notice verses 42 through 45. The following day, he finds that people are in the fields, so he divides now into three groups, into three companies, and they set an ambush in the fields. So he goes and fights against the people and kills them. He captures the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. You might be wondering what's going on there. Since the people of Shechem broke the covenant with him, Right? So they're in covenant loyalty. There's a covenant relationship between these people. By sowing it with salt, Abimelech is bringing total devastation to the city so that no life could ever come from the city again. He's devoted the city to complete destruction. But Abimelech is not done. 
In verses 46 through 49, he finds out that the leaders of the tower of Shechem are gathered together in the house of their god, El Barith, the god of the covenant. So Abimelech cuts down a bundle of brushwood. He takes this, these branches, right, and he places it on his shoulders, and they march to the stronghold. And he tells those who are with him to do the same. So they take their brush to the house, and they set it on fire. 1,000 men and women die. This fulfills the first part of Jotham's fable back in verse 15 and verses 15 and 20. That fire, look back at, at verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15. Here's Jotham giving this fable, giving this parable, this story. It's a curse upon the people. The bramble said to the trees, this is verse, verse 15, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, so if you're anointing Abimelech in good faith over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, here's, here's Abimelech, right? If not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Le Lebanon. If you're not satisfied with me as your king, in other words, right, Abimelech, let fire come out of me and destroy you, cedars of Lebanon. Destroy you, leaders of Shechem. That's what he's saying. Verse 20, you can see it in verse 20. But if not, so he interprets it now, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So here we are. The first part is fulfilled. Fire coming out of Abimelech and destroying the people because of this conflict, this break of covenant loyalty. This very thing comes to pass. Abimelech has turned against his own people and devoured them. So you might be wondering, well, how about the last part of the parable, right? How about the last part of the story? What will become of Abimelech? Will the rest of Jotham's parable be fulfilled? Will God bring justice to the evil that Abimelech has done to his people? In verses 50 through 57, we get the answer. Abimelech's rage continues. So we didn't know the story before. You'd imagine now he's just going to keep going. He's just going to keep spreading his own kingdom and his own fame. He goes to Thebes and captures it. But inside the city, there's a strong tower. And the people hid themselves inside this tower. And they go to the top of the tower. They go to the roof. And Abimelech seeks to do what he did to the stronghold of Shechem. He plans to burn it down, right? Let fire come out of him. And he draws near. Draws near to the door. The door is probably made of wood. That's going to burn, right? Draws near to the door. And a certain woman. So you're thinking fire's going to happen. Draws near to the door. And a certain woman, an unnamed woman, throws a stone from the roof of the tower and it hits him on the head and crushed his skull. The head of Abimelech is crushed by the stone of a woman. 
not wanting to die in a humiliating way. This would have been humiliating to die in this way. Abimelech tells his armor bearer to take out his sword and to thrust it through and kill him so that he might die with dignity. He wants to die in, on his terms. He wants to die in his way. And in this way, Abimelech dies. And the men of Israel, seeing their leader dead, they, they depart. They all return to their homes. The second part of Jotham's fable comes to pass as God brings justice upon Abimelech. Verses 56 through 57. Look with me there. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, the son of Gideon. So that's the summary. That's what's going on in this text. My question, this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on, is what do we learn from this? Right? You read this story, what do you learn? What are, what are some truths that we can take from these events? I see at least three, at least three practical implications from this text. First, first, and this is in your outline, take comfort in knowing that God is in control of human history and that he will bring justice to those who do evil. He will bring justice to those who reject him. That's a lesson that Israel should have learned as they read this text. It's a lesson that we should learn from this as well. And you see this, right? At the beginning of the episode, and then at the end of the episode, we are given a glimpse of what God is doing behind the scenes. This story is framed around who God is, right? In 22, 23, 24, 56, 57, here's what's going on. In sending a harmful spirit, God is orchestrating the events and the lives of these people to bring justice to those who had done evil to Gideon's family. Even though chaos is taking place in the background, we see that God is in control. And the author wants us to know that. Because when we read the account, if, we, if you took those verses out, you read the account, it all seemed natural, right? A family moves to town. The people put their trust in him. He has a plan to take over and advance his name, his kingdom. Abimelech finds out and doesn't like it, right, what Gael has done. So he does something about it because he wants to advance his own kingdom, his own name. He doesn't like what's happening, so he does something about it. He attacks the people, right, and then he dies. But in the author's mind, he wants us to know that God is not silent in human history. God is not silent in human history. And in this account, he brings justice upon those who do evil. He gives them exactly what their sins deserved. Consider this for a moment. Do you remember how Abimelech 
killed his brothers. Judges 9.5, look there. He went out to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. How will Abimelech's death be remembered? Right? We know how he died. How did he die? Sword, right? He died in dignity. Here, armor bearer, take the sword and drive it through me and kill me. So then I might die the way I want to die. How will he be remembered in his dying, in his death? 2 Samuel eleven twenty one. You can turn there. 2 Samuel eleven twenty one. This happens after. How is he going to be remembered? 2 Samuel eleven twenty one. You recall the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah? 2 Samuel eleven twenty one. 21. Who killed Abimelech? Who killed Abimelech? The son of Jerubbesheth, another name for Gideon, Jerubbaal. Did not a woman, so who killed Abimelech? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? The one who sought to exalt himself as king by killing his brothers on one stone is humiliated by being killed by a woman with one stone. Justice. The one who killed his brothers on one stone is killed by one stone and crushed beneath a stone. Consider this. In Judges 9.25, the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against Abimelech on mountaintops. Right? So they robbed those who passed by the way. In verse 25, put an ambush against Abimelech. The first, this is the first indication that this covenant relationship, this covenant loyalty has been broken. How does Abimelech defeat the leaders of Shechem? An ambush from the mountaintops. In verse 36. All this to say, God is in control of human history, and we as followers of Jesus should take comfort in this. We should take comfort in who God is. That He is sovereign. He is just. Consider the account of Joseph. We know the story of Joseph back in Genesis. Joseph knew that God was with him and that God was in control and used the events in his life for good to keep the people of Israel alive, right? To preserve them. All the evil that the, his brothers had planned and worked out brought him to Egypt so that God might use those events to keep alive and preserve the people of Israel. Consider Jesus. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when we see chaos in our world, when we consider the difficulties and the trials that we experience and that we face on a day-to-day basis, we should take comfort in the fact that God is in control. And when we experience suffering and persecution at the hands of others, I might today, right? I might today to a group of coaches. We should not retaliate, but entrust ourselves to God, who judges justly. We should cry out for their salvation. Oh, God, save them. Not retaliate. Why? You're in control. You're just. I know who you are. I have a relationship with you, and I want others to have the same. Second, second, the second point of application I want us to see is this. Our greatest problem is often the battle within and not from the outside. And, and when I say within, I'm not referring to within my own heart. Okay, that's a greatest, that is one of our greatest problems as well, right? The battle rages on within my own heart. But oftentimes, I'm, I'm talking here within, within the walls of the church, right? Within Christianity, and not from unbelievers. Within Christians, not from, from the outside, from unbelievers. And we see this in this, in, in this battle, that the battle is within Israel. They're fighting with one another. They have conflict with one another, and it results in them devouring one another. The very people that were to be a blessing to the nations, the very people that were to be a light to the nations, the very people that were to be holy and set apart for God because He is holy are acting just like the nations around them. They're in a constant battle with one another. I find it interesting from the book of Judges. I don't know if you picked this up. When the battle came from the outside, right, from the Gentiles around them, when the battle came from the outside, whether it was the Moabites or the Canaanites or the Midianites, what did God do? He raised up a leader to deliver and rescue his people from this discipline, from this judgment. He poured out his mercy upon his people when the enemy was from the outside. But when the enemy was within, what do we see here? We see God withholding his gracious hand for a time and operating according to his justice. I'm convinced that one of the greatest hindrances to our evangelistic effort is that the church, the new covenant people of God, is in too much conflict with one another. When fighting and conflict happens within, our witness for Christ is hindered, isn't it? When the people around us observe the way we treat one another, what do they end up saying? 
and say something like this. Why would I want to follow Jesus? Why would I want to be a part of that group? Right? Those who are indifferent to Christ become hostile toward Christ precisely because of the way many of us live. I've seen this firsthand in my coaching class. When I consider my coaching class, and, and like I've told you already, I get to complete it today. Last week, so I've gone Friday, 5 to 10, Saturday, 8 to 8, Sunday, 8 to 8. Last week, the issue of how Christians act came up in class, okay? One student sitting behind me said this, don't even get me started, right? Which makes me wonder, I, I consider this, when, we can, when I, I see this, when I consider judges, right? It makes me wonder, if there's no difference in us, if we fight and battle from within, what kind of example are we setting for those outside of us? In our coaching class, we've been addressing the issues of unity, teamwork, roles, its impact on the team. What happens when you have hostility? You're familiar with sports teams, right? What happens when there's hostility toward one another on a team? How well does the team function? Not very well. They might function okay for a little while if they've got some elite athletes or something that can carry them. But not very well. The same can be true of the church, can it? We could see this as a team. How we continue to strive for unity, to strive for being unified in our mission, understanding each other's roles goes a long way in us knowing Christ and making him known. Christ died to bring peace, to bring us peace with God, right? Yes, but he also died to bring peace with one another. As the people of God, we are united in Christ and we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? So, so my hope for us is that we would continue to come alongside one another. I'm thankful that we do this as a church. I want to continue to encourage this. Okay? That we would work together. That we would maintain the unity that we have in Christ so that Christ might be made known to our friends, our family, our co-workers. The gospel spread among the early church in Acts 2. How and why? Because of the love, fellowship, and unity that were displayed towards one another. Might that be continue to be true of us? Third, third and finally, Jesus, our serpent crusher, took the punishment that we deserve so that we might receive mercy. What isn't forgotten as we read this account, what the author keeps in our minds and has now done so, this is the second time here in, in the book of Judges, is this idea of, the, of a serpent crusher, okay? 
the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. By drawing our attention to the stone crushing his skull of Abimelech and the mention earlier with the tent peg. Remember the tent peg going through the temple and crushing the head of Sisera by Jael, another woman. These events remind us of a greater battle that has been going on between God's people and Satan. After Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, right, we have this. They give in to sin, temptation, and God promised that he would reverse the effects of the curse through the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. He would deliver a fatal blow to the head of the enemy. This theme is carried out in Throughout the story of the Bible, in Numbers 24, a prophecy is given that a star shall come out of Jacob. We know who this is referring to. A star will come out of Jacob, and a a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. And then here in Judges, right, two stories that speak of heads being crushed at the hands of two unlikely people, two women. David. We keep going in the story, right? David, the, the shepherd boy, anointed king, he rises up to defeat Goliath, the great champion. And as he stands to represent God's people, he crushes the head of Goliath, bringing victory to his people. When you read the account of David and Goliath, I've talked about this often, constantly you see the theme of head crushing These stories point us to Jesus. The one who has crushed our enemy by dying on the cross and rising again victorious over sin and death. Why? So that we would not be condemned for our sin, but rather we would receive mercy and grace. In our sinfulness, we're just like Abimelech. We're just like the leaders of Shechem. We are all deserving of God's justice. We are all deserving of of it to be poured out on us. We're sinners. We are sinners. And the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and deserve to be punished for our sin. But God sent his son who never sinned to take the punishment that you and I deserve. He took our curse and owned our blame so that we might bear his righteous name. Christ was condemned for us so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only mercy. Only mercy. If you place your faith in Christ, you will not experience God's justice since Christ took it for you. But only mercy, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. Our hearts should be filled with thankfulness to God for what he has done for us in 
Christ. And it should not cause us to live in fear of God's justice, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved us and gave himself up for us. So as we conclude, may we take comfort in who God is, knowing that he is in control of history, that he is on his throne, he is exalted on his throne, and he will bring justice upon evildoers. May we live in unity with one another as we strive to know Christ and make him known. And may we place our confidence in Christ who took our punishment so that we might receive the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the mercy, the love, the grace that you have poured out on us. We give you thanks that Jesus died in our place so that we might have peace with you and with one another. Might you help us maintain this unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Might we encourage one another come alongside one another and help one another grow in their relationship with the Lord. And might we remember and take comfort in the fact that you are in control. Might this cause us to depend upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.